0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get
1: started. Your body is unique. So, why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Welcome back to Vox Conversations. I'm Sean Ramos Freeman, I'm the host of Vox's daily news podcast Today Explained. But enough about me. In this feed, we're building on the rich legacy left by the last 5 years of Ezra Klein's conversations in this very feed. We're bringing you interviews between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know today. We're sharing one between sociologist and professor Rachel Sherman and Vox reporter and author of Can't Even: How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Her name is Anne Helen Peterson. Anne sits down with Rachel to discuss her recent research on class and wealth and anxiety. Here are Anne and Rachel.
2: I want to start by asking you a question. Do you think of yourself as middle class? If the answer is yes, then I'd ask why? Why? The reason I'm asking is because I've spent the last couple months thinking a ton about middle-class identity. A lot of people think that they're middle-class. Most people in America think that they're middle-class, but that's not always necessarily the case. We're really bad about talking honestly about class identity. And until we can talk more honestly about it, we're still going to face a lot of these problems of inequality in our country right now. This is a really big, really complicated topic. And I found that Rachel Sherman's work has actually allowed me to think about it in really interesting ways. She's a professor of sociology at the New School, and she studies class identity. Her latest book is called Uneasy Street, and it's one of the most illuminating things I've read about class in America. But it's actually about the rich. For this book, Rachel conducted dozens of interviews with rich people in New York, and she found that a lot of them actually have a lot of anxiety about their wealth. They weren't anxious about losing their money. It was more about how can you be a rich person and also a good person? Does it mean hiding the fact that you're rich on an everyday basis? So for this conversation, Rachel and I talked about those interviews and about what those anxieties reveal about American class identity today. So I want to talk a little bit about our definitions of class because We have like what we think about as upper class, or sometimes we call them rich. And then there's the middle class, which, you know, we think of as kind of this ghost category. That's what you call it in your book. So can you talk a little bit about how you try to delineate the difference between these classes in your research?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. The definition of class and sociologists will, I don't know, probably come for me with anything that I say about it, because it's. It's very complicated. And and without getting too much into it, I mean, one way of thinking about class is sort of distributional. It's like where you fall on an income distribution, right? Lower, middle, higher, upper, whatever. And that's how we typically think of class as being talked about. You know, and we can think about that as a distribution just of income and wealth, it is important to include wealth, not just income. But it's also often a distribution of other kinds of opportunities like education, right? And, and often that's brought into the kind of definitions of class. There's also a way of thinking about it that is more relational or more about the reasons that our people are in certain kinds of categories. So we, we could talk more about that. But that's one of the things that I think is so important about talking about class in the U.S. is that we have all of these different things that are happening at the same time in the way that we're talking about it. And then nowhere is that more true than in our conversations about the middle class. But I think that it's a ghost category because it does the work of, it does a kind of symbolic work in popular discourse that is not reflected in the actual existence of the middle class. So the middle class has become something in our sort of collective imagination that is both a position in the middle, it's neither too low, nor too high. It's like the Goldilocks of classes. I think it connotes a sort of achievement, right? People moving into the middle class from some other class. It has a moral worth because we imagine middle class people to be hard workers. And we imagine them to have sort of the basic necessities of a good life, like a home, a car, some degree of education, a good job, you know, that kind of um, and I think we typically think of the the middle class as being made up of families, not so much of individuals, right? But the reason that that's kind of a ghostly thing is that the middle class people who are distributionally in the middle now actually can't necessarily afford to buy all of those things, right? Which is why we have, you know, su- just trillions of dollars in student debt. I mean, people, you know, in uh, families getting into debt to send their kids to college, massive amounts of housing debt. Um, people who are, are, are not able to achieve those goals because of the increasing inequality in our society, you know, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, in which people at the top have, you know, appropriated most of the economic growth has gone to people at the very top. And the jobs have increased at the top and at the bottom, but not so much in the middle.
2: I was just thinking of like the one thing that like I remember getting like thrown around, like a piece of information that has always lived in my head since I was in like high school or college, is that in the UK, when people are surveyed about their class status, people are much more willing to say, yes, I'm working class. Whereas in the United States, like there is just a reticence to identify as poor or as rich. And so, like, sometimes when I think about the middle class, I'm like, oh, it's just something you're defining yourself as what you're not. Like, no one wants to identify as these other two categories in America. And why is there, I mean, I understand why there's shame attached to being poor, but, like, being rich is fulfillment of the American dream. So, like, what is that antipathy towards identifying as rich?
3: So there's a lot going on in what you just said. I mean, one thing is that we don't, Americans are less likely to identify as working class, although it's actually that Americans are also given that option less often mm-hmm. on polls and so on. So, But the, the whole question of what is the working class just calls into, raises the issue of what our classes and how do we have this weird class schema where we have like poor, lower class, working class, middle class, upper middle class and upper class or something like working and poor don't fit into those relational categories that exist in relation to each other low middle and upper basically right so then you have working which describes a set of relationships not a, a kind of amount of money but the other thing and what you said i think is totally true is that the middle class is the only morally good class in the sense that it's stigmatized to be poor, which, you know, you just sort of said, well, we can understand why that would be, but can we understand why that would be? I mean, the reason that that is, is that being poor is understood as a failing and, you know, a, a problem having to do with your individual capacity, your hard work, your dedication, your, you know, desire to get ahead and blah, blah, blah. Like these are all, things that are kind of attributes of the individual. So if you're poor, it's your own fault. And at the top, I think that there's a more complicated thing going on where uh, on the one hand, if you are at the top, it's your own fault (laughs) in a good way, which is that people who are at the top are understood to belong at the top, right? The way that people are at the bottom are understood to belong at the bottom through some failing of their own or some achievement of their own, right? So on the one hand, we have ideas about rich people. Like if they're rich, they must have done something right and they must be you know, they must be good people and they must deserve it. But on the other hand, we also have all these images of wealthy people that are really stigmatized, right? They're selfish, they're lazy, they act entitled, you know, they're rude, they think they're better than other people, they're overly consumerist, they're materialistic, they're ostentatious. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And we have lots of depictions in popular culture of rich people who are mean and horrible. And so even people who are in, you know, the top... 1%, 0.1%, 5%, 10%, I mean, however you want to understand economically privileged or elite, um, want to distance themselves from those kinds of stigma.
2: How much of this has to do with... The you know, old-fashioned Protestant work ethic and this fetishization of of productivity, because I think a lot of rich people are obsessed with still working. You know, like, I've <laughs> looked at these stats about, like the the more money you make, at least like over the last fifty years, the more likely you are to uh, be putting in you know, 80-hour, 90-hour weeks.
3: Yes, oh my God. Like, yes, I mean, there's been objectively a transition to, you know, higher proportion of wealthy people now are actually working and they work long hours, as you said, and they work in finance or corporate law or, you know, the related kinds of profession. You know, when we think about the upper class, I think we often get this idea of a sort of stodgy, waspy, like quasi-aristocratic White, obviously, you know, people who are in the social register and who belong to the country club and who, you know, don't want their children to marry a Jewish person or something like that. Like this kind of (laughs) old-timey, exclusive, rich people thing that's inherited wealth. You know, it's like the Rockefellers and the old money, Vanderbilts and whatever. So, and there's some of that still, but now we have an elite that is more... I I really don't like the phrase self-made and we can talk about why, but it has at least accumulated more of its wealth itself, right? Or more recently uh, through paid work. And partly that's because it's become a lot easier. You know, when I was growing up in the eighties, like there were not very many billionaires, right? We didn't have this kind of the capacity to accumulate these enormous astronomical amounts of money. That's part of it is that like, there's literally been a shift. And with that shift, comes a shift to the idea of meritocracy as important, right? right? That old upper class is kind of like, we're upper class because, you know, we're better than you. And <laughs> there's like not that much shame about saying that or thinking that, right? We're the, and, you know, we're the upper crust and we, our way is the best way. Now I think we don't, people can't say that. And I think mostly people don't feel that. There's the, this idea that you have to merit your own wealth. You have to be worthy of wealth through hard work. Because, as you said, there is this Protestant ethic that has been sort of, you know, part of the, the foundational culture of the United States. And I think that that's a really becomes a really foundational, although much less talked about piece of our kind of culture of understanding moral worth of wealthy people. Typically, they've been entrepreneurs and men, right, who those are like the good rich people that we look up to and that we think like, yes, you know, Warren Buffett. And and that's partly because they've accumulated a bunch of money and it's because often they are understood to not be overspenders, right? Warren Buffett lives in his ranch house in Omaha where he's lived since the 50s. You know, Zuckerberg wears the same sweatshirt every day. You know, all these tech men are known for being sort of low-consuming, like Steve Jobs and his turtleneck and so on. I mean, this may or may not actually be true, right? But this is the image that we have. These are entrepreneurs who aren't like – so fancy.
2: Right. They're Um, not, they're not as interested in spending their money, right? Like they, and this goes back to this idea of idols of production versus idols of consumption. Like what people are known for in terms of like how they make their wealth and what we admire about them. It's not like the conspicuous consumption that I think really gets feminized or raced, right? Like it's, um, something that like people who aren't worthy of their money or who are new money do is lavishly spend on things that are garish or over the top. And so I want to like kind of go back and think like so many of our representations of people who deserve their money, who have somehow meshed like the appropriate amount of consumption and the appropriate amount of accumulation of capital, they're, they're white men. So what does that do in terms of like our understanding of who deserves, like who naturally is able to climb this ladder.
3: Yeah. I mean, it makes it seem like white men are are the natural people to climb this (laughs) ladder. And I like, oh, look, it happens to be white men, again, who are, you know, all of the billionaires and have accumulated, you know, are the, I don't know, I don't know what percentage they are, but they're, you know, certainly the overwhelming percentage of wealthy people are white men.
2: Yeah. And I think about like during recessions, like the white middle class and the white privileged class like they are just better set up to weather those recessions because like let's say you are a black middle class family and your your assets your home there is a likelihood that that home is in a place that has lower property value just because of the way that like the patterns of black ownership and, and homes and so I was talking to someone the other day who were like, you know, every single time that there has been a major recession, like in the 1980s. And then again, with the Great Recession, like my grandparents got foreclosed on and then my parents lost all of the value in their home during the Great Recession. So here I am, ostensibly a third generation middle class black woman, and I don't have any of that accumulated wealth.
3: Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the foundation of the racial wealth gap. Right. Right. And it's not only the ways in which. People in that situation haven't been able to accumulate, but the ways in which certain kinds of policies have allowed white people, again, particularly white men and sort of heads of household, to accumulate, you know, the classic example being the GI Bill, which gave returning veterans access to education, to low-interest loans, you know, so they could become college-educated homeowners in ways that that, uh, even black servicemen— were left out of the GI Bill. And then, of course, you have, you know, racial covenants in housing and all of these other ways that white people are able to accumulate more wealth. And that persists. I mean, that goes back to the issue of the middle class, right? And that's also about people just moving into the middle class, let alone becoming astronomically wealthy. The system in which people have been able to accumulate wealth is always racialized, gendered, ableist. I mean, it has all of these characteristics. And yet it is attached to a kind of ideological thing that says, look at these people who made it. You know, therefore, that means there's a level playing field and anybody can do it if they just work hard enough and they want it enough.
2: So we've been talking about the middle class and your book is about the rich. And for your book, you interview several dozen rich people in New York. But whenever I tell people about this book, they always immediately want to know, how did you find these people? And how did you convince them to talk to you?
3: It wasn't easy. Um, So I did have to (laughs) spend a lot of time at the beginning of this project thinking about this. And so one of the things that I was confronting is I think one of the things that you and people you're talking to might be assuming, which is people don't want to talk about their money, right? So that's this kind of basic thing that someone like me has to overcome, especially people who have a lot of money um, are often very private about it. And that was true. And... People who are wealthy don't often like to identify as such. I mean, that was something that I found as I went along in this process was we have these images of people, you know, celebrities and some wealthy people who aren't celebrities they're sort of visible in popular culture. So then we think like, oh yeah, people with a lot of money like to be visible in popular culture. But then of course, we're not seeing the people who don't want to be visible. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, that that I think that really skews our ideas about what wealthy people sort of look like and how they act and what they care about and so on. So yeah, I had started the, trying to find people for this project. I was like, I don't think that I can just say I'd like to talk to rich people or wealthy people or high net wealth people or, you know, any of the euphemisms that we have for rich people. And I was really not just interested in talking to, you know, any rich person about anything. I did want to talk to people who were had children, you know, people who were parents sort of in their 30s, 40s and 50s who were making decisions about lifestyle because of what I was interested in was thinking about how people who, you know, have some excess money by some definition, although that's also complicated to think about how they make choices about how to spend it. And I also have some, I mean, I don't have money the way that most of the people that I interviewed do, but part of my family is wealthy. And so I'm sort of, you know, I have some knowledge of some cultures of wealth, but they're very different. You know, it's very different to talk to someone who lives in Park Slope in a, you know, brownstone, mostly with inherited wealth, who's an artist and someone who lives on the Upper East Side, you know, in a $10 million apartment that they bought, as a result of the husband's employment in like private equity, right? I mean, those are two different kinds of things. So one of those kinds of things I'm a little bit more familiar with than than the other kind. Um, but yeah, and also most of the people I talked to were women, and I am a woman, and so there are many things that I have in common with these people. And I also think it's really important, as as any kind of interviewer, as I'm sure you already know, to have empathy for the people that you're talking with and genuine curiosity about them and not have judgment. And I think that's one of the things about this book that was also hard for me was it's hard to write about wealthy people without seeming judgmental. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, people who read my book or have listened to me talk about it themselves are really judgmental of rich people and just hate all my subjects. But I don't. And I think it's important not to, you know, that's just not in fact, that's that I'm arguing against an orientation of judging individual rich people on the basis of their individual wealth or their individual behavior. So I don't think that that's very productive. So I think I'm, I'm often able to establish some kind of communication with these people. And to get back to your original question, I mean, you know, some of them said, I've never talked to anybody about these issues before. I've never told anybody how much money we have, which is just testament to how private these things are. You know, I'm not going to tell my husband that I talked to you because he would be really angry at me. There's this very, very powerful taboo about it.
2: Did you tell them or did you even understand yourself when you started this project that you were doing a larger book project type thing on the anxieties that rich people feel?
3: No, I did not uh, understand that. I mean, I came to this book because I had written another book, which was my dissertation research, which was an ethnographic study of two luxury hotels in which I worked in To luxury hotels for a a total of a year, and one of the things that I had found in that project was a surprising amount of ambivalence on the part of guests who stay in luxury hotels. I had interviewed not a huge number, but some people who do that, and they were just often really stressed out about it. They didn't really feel like they deserved to be there. They didn't, you know, they were concerned about their relationships with workers, and even as a worker in these hotels myself. I found guests really going out of their way to be nice to me and try to develop a relationship with me. So it was then that I thought like, huh, you know, kind of this conventional stereotype of rich people as being obnoxious and entitled is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do seem to be kind of conflicted. So it was that conflict I already had some idea about. And I think it was because I had seen the conflict in terms of them consuming luxury hotel services that I thought, like, I wonder what else they're conflicted about consuming, right? And how did they think about those kinds of choices? But I didn't I didn't imagine that I was going to end up writing a whole book about the sort of what I think the book is about, which is what it takes to be a morally worthy, wealthy person, at least for these, you know, 50 relatively liberal, I mean, some politically conservative, although not very many, and some very politically progressive, but mostly kind of liberal, socially liberal, certainly New York parents, which is a particular group of rich people, right? It's not all rich people. But yeah, I did find these conflicts, which i call called the anxieties of affluence, about not being stigmatized, not being that kind of overly entitled rich person that thinks money's important and that you're better than other people and that you know spendthrift and all these other negative characteristics that we often associate with wealthy people. And what I argue in the book about that is that mostly these people are trying to see themselves as and be hardworking, prudent consumers who give back, who are aware of their privilege in a kind of private way, like they know that they have more than others and they're grateful for that and appreciative about it. And they feel lucky. They often use a language of feeling lucky, but also they never talk about it. And they raise children who don't act entitled. And so that's this, you know, you just, I would hear that these characteristics often in the way that they thought about themselves and the way that they thought about their spending in particular, and they're really doing this thing that I call aspiring to the middle, which is portraying themselves as normal kind of regular family people who you know have dinner at home with their kids and walk their kids to school and, you know, don't do extravagant things and are always, you know, nice to the waiter or nice to their domestic workers and so on. And when I say portray themselves, I don't mean that they're lying. You know, I I actually have no information on, I don't think that they're secretly evil and they're (laughs) just telling me, right? I think that they really care about being like this. And so that that's, that's how they're making sense of their own affluence and kind of distancing themselves is almost, they know that they're wealthy but they also want to be thinking of themselves as middle class because middle class is the morally better category.
2: Yeah. And they also, I knew several people who over the course of my college career, I went to a small liberal arts college. It was very gradually revealed that this person was incredibly rich, but you would never know, right? Like they were wearing the same jeans as everyone else on campus and the same like ratty fleece, but I think especially on the West Coast, there are these ideas or in other areas outside of maybe like the Ivy Leagues, there are these ideas of like, if you reveal yourself to be rich, you are othering yourself in some way. And also the presumption becomes like you're a bad person and you have to prove yourself good instead of you're a normal person and everyone assumes that you're normal.
3: Yeah, I think the college thing, I mean, I haven't studied this, but I just, you know, my sense from talking in my current project to a lot of younger people, as well as having been a college teacher myself for a while, is that on the one hand, there is that like, people are trying to all be the same. Like when I taught at Yale, you no, know, every student wore a Yale sweatshirt every single day. <laughs> and you like had no idea. I mean, at least in my perception, right? They, there may have been some more fine-grained perceptions than, than mine. But at the same time, like people, young people will talk about feeling left out of certain kinds of, you know, things that everybody knows because they all went to boarding school Or I don't know, other kinds of like rich people things that many people in elite schools have that people who didn't grow up rich to feel alienated from that. But at the same time, the rich people are kind of hiding the fact that they're rich so that hoping that kind of no one will know. And I think that happens, you know, when you're not in college anymore either. This other thing happens where you kind of do know Mm -hmm. when people in your circle are wealthy. You might not know how wealthy, but you know when you're in, you know, when your friends bought a brownstone or – you know, send their kid to private school or take some elaborate vacation or buy a second home. You know, those kinds of things are indicators. But yet they are very rarely talked about, even among people who are relatively close friends, especially if there are class differences between those friends. Right.
2: All right. We're going to take a quick break. More coming up from Rachel Sherman when we come back.
1: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: So going back to this woman that I was talking about who is the third generation of middle class status in her family. She's a black woman in Connecticut. And she talks about how, like, I can't have conversations with my friends about how I'm struggling to pay my bills, even though I'm ostensibly middle-class. And I know that some of them are also ostensibly middle-class and maybe also might have, you know, be kind of cutting it close on month-to-month expenses because my experience of middle-classness is so different than theirs because they're white. Like, it just has a different tenor to it and I cannot stomach talking about it I think a lot of like anger and resentment comes from there so people maybe do you think that it people opt not to or they just don't want to go there or is it just still considered bad taste to talk about it and then the other kind of secondary question is that I do think that maybe Gen Z is getting better at this maybe I'm wrong
3: well, in terms of the, the reasons that people don't talk about it, I do think, yes, it's, I think it's still seen as being in bad taste, but I, I think it's seen as being in bad taste because it being in bad taste is functional to what you mentioned before, which is never talking about the reasons that some people have more money than others. Right. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is I think that it is, you know, the people who I talk to almost universally don't want to identify as wealthy, right? I had a woman whose husband who no longer works herself, but uh, works for money. But her husband makes like, you know, $2.5 million a year in income. And she was like, I don't think we're affluent. <laughs> you know, the, the people who are affluent have their own private plane. Like I have friends who have a private plane. Those people are affluent. And I've I heard that several times of like, well, our friends have a private plane, you know, so they're wealthy, but we're not really. And that investment in not being wealthy I think is really important. You know, people, again, it's this aspiration to the middle. So so that's part of it. And and also, I think it just makes people feel conflicted. So it's easier to just not be aware of it. And mm-hmm. it's something that people kind of push to the back of their mind. Obviously, they know how much money they have, you know, at least more or less. Not everybody and every couple does, in fact, know how much money they have. but. You know, they know that they have a lot. And yet it becomes something that they're kind of not thinking about because it is uncomfortable to think about it. And it can be uncomfortable to think about it because, you know, you may have people in your family who have less than you. You may have close friends who have less than you. You may notice that you have domestic workers in your home who you know have a lot less than you. You may see inequality as a big deal in the news, you know, now more than you used to. The recession of 2008 may have affected you. Occupy Wall Street. I mean, there's all of these things that kind of made all of that more, a little bit more publicly. Notable, So I think that the silence around it kind of holds the system in place, right? Keeps this legitimate. And I also think that the normalization of what I call the normalization of affluence happens partly because of that silence and happens because we have this idea that good wealthy people deserve it. So as long as they work for it, as long as they spend well, as long as they're generous, you know, philanthropically or they do charitable work and they, their kids are not obnoxious you know then they deserve it and that idea of as an individual person you can deserve it takes all of the focus away from unjust systems of distribution yep you know honestly i don't care what kind of house Warren Buffett lives in, you know, (laughs) I just don't think that anybody should have a billion dollars. Like, I think there's something wrong with a system where somebody has a billion dollars and somebody else has negative wealth, any other person, right? Right. And so I don't, I I got nothing against Warren Buffett. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I am not saying Warren Buffett is a bad person. I don't care. That's, and that's what I would like to see more of is people who just think like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And that, of course, itself opens the question of how fair is the system through which people have
2: accumulated this wealth? Right. I've seen so many clips of Warren Buffett going to get his Egg McMuffin in the morning, you know,
3: right. um, yeah.
2: and how that component of his celebrity image is used to, like, make him seem very, you know, approachable and middle class and normal in some capacity and also like make acute for lack of a better word and inoculating him against those critiques of like, oh, he is a beneficiary of this capitalist system that produces billionaires, <laughs> right? Like you are distracting from the larger systems critique by focusing on the individual.
3: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's not just that he gets his English muffin. He lives in his ranch house, but he gives away a lot of money, yep. you know, and he's drawn attention. I mean, the Buffett rule, you know, is drawn attention to the unequal effects of tax policy that are, you know, disproportionately affect non-rich people. Yeah, all of that. And so that's what I'm saying about that's, in a way, as long as we have bad rich people, right, we can also have good rich people. Mm-hmm. And then as long as we have good rich people, it means the system is OK. And the problem with the, the bad rich people is just that they're morally bad or they're greedy or they're spendy or whatever. And it's very difficult to draw attention to the inequalities of the system.
2: So this is actually a great segue into just thinking about your current research, which is on rich people who give away all of their money or are trying to give away a lot of their money. You know, there's a section in your book book when you interview all of the rich people where you focus really on their philanthropic activities. And I always, I just like, it's going to stick in my mind forever. The guy who was like, I gave $500 to like a thousand organizations, but I didn't want (laughs) to, I didn't want to give anything more than $500 because I didn't want them to peg me as a donor. I didn't want them to like be calling me and inviting me to their galas and like think of me as a person who they ask for money. Like I just didn't want to be thought of that way. So how are these people that that you are talking with now who are really invested in giving a lot of money away and being known as someone who gives a lot of money away? what are their politics? How are they thinking through the, the questions of their own wealth? What kind of wealth do they have?
3: I mean, on just on that example of that person, I mean, I think that one problem that a lot of wealthy people face is they are constantly being asked for money, right? So that is the the sort of practical issue of, you know, outing yourself as someone with a lot of money is that a lot of people are going to ask you for that money. right? But I, I also think that Not outing yourself as rich for that reason, it it conceals another reason, which is, again, the same reason we don't talk about it, which is like, you don't want to think of yourself as rich, Mm -hmm. right? You just don't want to think like, wow, I could give away a million dollars and it wouldn't actually hurt me. You know, we have, I think that wealthy people have all these reasons that they don't think that even when it is actually true. And, And I can say something else about that. I mean, the philanthropy thing, you know, this idea of giving back as part of being a good person, which I actually think is part of being a good person, you know, sort of in American culture generally, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just about wealthy people. It's a very vague idea. Like, what does it actually even mean to give back? And many of the people I interviewed don't give back particularly large percentages of their income or their wealth, right? I mean, this is another thing that happens. You think like, oh my God, you know, Jeff Bezos gave you know, $50 million to something or $1 million. I I don't know how much money Jeff Bezos is giving lately, but it's never very much relative to his actual amount of money that he has, even though it seems like a lot in absolute terms. So we're often like, look at this rich person gave away all this money, but it's actually not that much money. So that's one thing to think about. I think in the the new work that I'm looking at, it's not only about people who are trying to give away a lot of money or giving away all their money. It's about people who are precisely challenging this narrative of the good wealthy person as someone who deserves wealth. Yeah, And these are people who are saying the system is broken. You know, I don't deserve the wealth that I have. Nobody deserves immense wealth. And it's not because I'm a bad person or because I didn't work for it or whatever. It's just because the reason that I have this wealth is because of the way that a, an unfair system is set up. So for some people who've inherited money, that can be because where the money came from, in some cases, comes from, you know, having enslaved peoples, having slaveholders in their history, their family history, having dispossessed indigenous people through some kind of you know, land stuff or real estate or whatever at some point, it almost always means exploitation of some kind, right? People don't accumulate fortunes by doing exclusively good in the world, although sometimes that's how they're represented. It can mean understanding one's own capacity to accumulate wealth or one's, you know, usually father or grandfather or great-grandfather's capacity to accumulate wealth as a function of privilege. Right. Typically whiteness, because, you know, as you said, there's very little accumulated wealth among people of color and these other kinds of advantages that we were already talking about, as well as, you know, having a decent education and having all of the kind of trappings of growing up relatively well off. And even people who didn't grow up well off who were in these communities recognize that they were subsidized often by state programs, by free education, by state investments in technology Or housing or whatever. So there's a whole systems critique that it's basically a critique of racial capitalism Mm -hmm. and a corresponding critique of meritocracy as the ideology, right? Just saying like, no, this isn't right. It's not true. And we don't deserve it.
2: So they use the phrase high net wealth, or at least some of them use the phrase high net wealth instead of high net worth.
3: Yeah, and that's precisely because high net worth connotes moral worth, right? It connotes that you that you deserve it if you have it. They also often challenge the use of the word earned, and you'll notice I'm not using the word earned because earned itself has a moral connotation Mm -hmm. um, that you deserve it if you earned it, and instead I use the word accumulated, and some other people in this doing this kind of work do that as well. So there's different kinds of people who have you know there's not one like mass of wealthy people doing this kind of work and it takes different forms. Some of the people that I'm talking to, I, I started this research primarily by talking to members and staff and activists in Resource Generation, which is a an organization for people in the top 10%, people with access to wealth who are under 35. So these are, you know, relatively young people who are kind of questioning Typically, they come from inherited wealth. They don't necessarily come from what we think of as super wealthy families, but sometimes they do. And some of them have earning capacity themselves, usually in tech. Some of them come from immigrant families, typically from South or East Asia, but most of them are white. So, you know, this is young people with relatively radical politics who are kind of challenging these ideas about wealth and seeing wealth. You know, one of the mottos is that circulates in this community is all wealth is stolen like that There is no such thing as legitimate wealth. And then there are other organizations that are related to resource generation in some way or preceded them. I and mean, there's a whole history of social justice philanthropy going back to the 70s, which is also young inheritors trying to find ways not just to give away their money, but to give it away – in new ways. So to direct it to grassroots organizations that are making change from the bottom up. So now a lot of people in this field, for example, are giving money to the movement for black lives and other kinds of organizations, you know, in that field. But the idea is that change should come from the grassroots. And so it's really challenging conventional philanthropy, which says donors should be in charge of everything. Organizations should jump through lots of hoops in order to get the money, then they should have all this accountability, they should have measurable outcomes. You know, we should be giving money to the thing that's going to be the most like bang for your buck in terms of eliminating malaria or something like that. Um, That is not what this kind of philanthropy is. But there's also in addition to philanthropy, there's other kinds of efforts, including sort of social justice investment, which is investment against the principle that you should always get as much money with your investments as you possibly can. Right. The idea that, in fact, you can invest in community projects like community loan funds or solidarity economy, things like co-ops and, again, sort of grassroots efforts and maybe have no return, maybe have a 1% or a 2% return, right? But that the return is not always the the most important thing. And then there's people working on policy initiatives, right? I mean – Particularly tax policy, we have groups like the Patriotic Millionaires and Responsible Wealth, which is mostly older people—I mean, older than thirty-five—who see the the main way to fix the system as to tax the rich and have the state be a better allocator of resources for everybody, right, um, as it once was.
2: So, you know, you've been doing this research for for a little while, and you know, there's a recent big feature. On uh, some of these people in the New York Times, like, why do you think that as a culture, we are really interested in this particular type of high net wealth person in this moment? Is it because we are at almost unprecedented levels of inequality right now in our society?
3: Yes, partly. Um, I think that because inequality is so extreme, it's now anybody that's fighting inequality is is interesting, right? But particularly, I think that rich people doing things that are counterintuitive from the sort of images that we typically have of rich people are also always publicly interesting. So when, you know, I think journalists or whoever see people doing something that feels so deeply counterintuitive, it just seems really interesting, because it feels as if they're working against their own self interest. And that's, Something that I think is also really important to mention is that the vision of self-interest that people doing this kind of work have is not, it's not about just, you know, as one person said to me, like hiding behind your mountains of money, right? One of the reasons that wealthy people accumulate and that everybody wants to accumulate is because they're afraid of risk, right? And especially in the U.S., you know, the... Mm -hmm. The state's not going to do anything for you, right? You can die in the street. I mean literally you can die in the street in the United States. So the idea that you need a lot of money to protect yourself from, you know, if you get a horrible disease or I don't know, if you have some other disaster, it's not entirely wrong, right? We don't have a social safety net of any Quality. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, of course, the, the level of accumulation that really rich people have is well beyond anything they would ever need to, you know, even the worst crisis. So there's, you know, that doesn't actually make sense. And I think that many people in who are trying to change the system that produces that kind of wealth just think I would I will be better off myself. It's not about noblesse oblige. It's not about having, you know, this is something I should do for the world or giving something up. It's I myself will be better off if more people are, have a decent life. And I am able to think of myself as more secure in that world. And partly, sometimes you hear this, like, pitchforks narrative, right? If we don't do this, you know, the the masses are going to come for us with their pitchforks. But the idea that the pitchforks are coming is is one thing. That's a kind of self-defense narrative. But I think more prominent than that is this idea of, like, we're all better off if people who have less are better off and people at the top can give something up. And, you know, I, I talked to someone who said, I think of my my monthly donations to... I think it was the Movement for Black Lives and some kinds of indigenous justice. Those, I think of those as investments in my retirement plan. Mm. Like, that's my community, right? And, you know, maybe that's utopian in any given individual instance, but the idea of, like, we are actually all in this society together and we have an obligation to take care of each other, it seems so basic, but it's really pretty far from most of the rhetoric you know, of kind of individual achievement, individual responsibility. And so I think that's a really that's a really important thing, too. And I'll just say one other thing about what people in this field are doing. It's not only, you know, tax policy or other kinds of policy or giving away money to, in new ways and investing money in new ways. It's also talking about this. Mm hmm. Right. And it's talking to the people's families about it. People in inherited wealth families often don't even talk to their own families. They don't know how much money their family has. They don't know where it's invested. So even beginning those kinds of conversations, and this is true even for adults, you know, talking to adults in their like 40s, right, talking to their own parents or other family members about it. Um, talking to financial advisors about it, talking to their friends about it, talking to, you know, one of the things you see that the bureaucratic millionaires do is, and some of these other people aren't necessarily affiliated with any of these groups, is write these letters that you see in the Times that are like, you know, rich people should be taxed more, signing letters like that that are also interesting because they are counterintuitive, right? That rich people think like, I should pay more taxes, being public about it in that way. Like these are all really important ways of of bringing to the fore these obligations you know this different way of thinking about about money and the necessity of talking about it
2: you know i think about it in terms of like you know capitalism is a system that makes a lot of people uncomfortable right and one way of dealing with that you know if i think about like anxiety like individuals who have anxiety you deal with it on an individual level you try to process it you know psychologically <laughs> by coming up with stories that you tell yourselves and others about your wealth and how you got your wealth and whether you deserve it and how you give back as a as a means of deserving it and then contrast that with a way of confronting capitalism that says like i'm not going to try to process this as an individual I'm going to try to invest in my community and try to figure out how we deal with the system itself. Like it's a very collectivist approach as opposed to this individual approach. And I think people in this moment are really oscillating between these like just I'm not talking about the people that you're interviewing at all. Just like people in the world are like, okay, we have these pretty stark differences in the way of of moving forward. Like do we want to be a country that is so predicated on the individual, which you know, we have been for a very long time, but have also gone to these moments of real collectivism and, and thinking in a more, you know, whatever happens to the the least of us, the the poorest of us, the, the, the most sick amongst us is what happens to all of us. You know, I love talking about it in this way because you you have to talk about it. You have to think about it in, the, in different terms. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. We're just going to continue to prop up this system that continues to produce inequality.
3: Yeah. And one of the things I really want to stress about that is there's a, a real analogy here to what I think a, a phenomenon that has gotten more public attention, which is The phenomenon of white people sort of confronting their own racism and white supremacy and their own privileges that come from a system of white supremacy. This is analogous to that in several ways, although not always. And one of the things that I always think about is the way that if you have an idea of like, I'm a good person because I give back, I work hard, you know, I'm moderate consumer, whatever. And then someone says like, no, actually you still don't deserve all this money. It can make you feel like a bad person. And, and I think that's often what white people are, you know, they're like, well, I'm not a racist because it's bad to be a racist. And so to say like, yeah, you may or may not be an individual racist, but you benefit from a system of white supremacy is a, is a shift of the lens that can, can really trigger this feeling of moral unworthiness. So a lot of what I the people that I'm, you know, working with now and writing this book about, it's about moving out of feeling bad about it, moving out of feeling guilty about having the money because you didn't deserve it, moving away from not wanting to talk about it because you feel bad about it, just saying, like, yeah, I have this money as a result of a system that is fundamentally unfair. And then my moral obligation becomes to give that money away or move it or raise awareness about it or, you know, to talk about it and then take it on as a political project rather than just continuing to be afraid and never acknowledging it. So I think that's that's the work that has to happen, right? It's that people have to, it, it really passes through an individual moment of identity and self-worth on the way to creating this more, kind of open talking about it and open, and openly systemic analysis of it.
2: I love that. That's the work that we have to do. Thank you so much for coming and having this conversation.
0: Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Vox Conversations. The show is produced by Zach Mack. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our consulting editor is Allison McAdam and Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear about that too. We're especially curious to know what you want to hear more of. If it's other ideas for guest hosts or guests, whatever it is, send us an email, voxconversations at vox.com. Again, let us know your feedback at voxconversations, all one word, at vox.com. And if you want to just go on one of your podcast apps and write a rave review, you know, no one's going to stop you. Thanks again.